The following is a message by Dr. Howell Jones from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Together, O Lord, we do rejoice in Thee and in Thine acceptance of Thy dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, after he had accomplished the work which Thou gavest him to do on behalf of his people. And we come to Thee this morning through him, the one who is within us by his Spirit, and the one who physically and gloriously is at Thy right hand, there representing us to Thee, We thank Thee that through him we have confident access to Thee, assurance of salvation through his merit and also peace and strength through his all-conquering and protecting power. Keep us by Thy grace in him and direct our steps so that we might continue to worship and serve Thee here on earth. Receive our thanks, pardon our sins, bless to us thy word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Be seated, please. Let us hear the word of God, the opening two verses of the second chapter of the first epistle of John. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. May God bless to us his word. It is not only those who are still in the dark who take a light view of sin and sinning. They do it uninterruptedly and blatantly at times. And in this letter, John uses the present tense to describe their thinking and speaking, their goals and aims and their conduct and character. It is also the case that those who have been enlightened and enlivened, enlivened by the word of life, enlightened by the God who is light and in whom is no darkness at all, it's also possible for them to take a light view of sin as well. And we who are so described know how true that is. And this is John's concern as he writes these words that we have just heard. He does not want in any way to be misunderstood. He doesn't want anything that he has written to be misused. Any one of those whom he calls here only my little children, using the word little children that Jesus himself used, 
both in the upper room and uh, at the shore of the Sea of Galilee after his resurrection, he doesn't want any of those to whom he writes to ever think that what he has just recorded for their benefit in any way excuses sin or permits them to think lightly of it. Rather the reverse. My little children, he says, these things I write unto you that you sin not. He's speaking pastorally, not paternalistically. He's speaking with a loving heart, but a firm hand and a knowing mind. Because he knows that behind sin and sinning is the deceiver and the murderer of souls himself. And his masterpiece, sin, is able to survive and thrive in spite of the gospel, in spite of the things that he has written. Sin is like that many-headed hydra of classical mythology. Hercules lopping off one head, two heads immediately springing up in its place. Or as John himself writes in the Revelation, that dragon whose two beasts had heads and wounds that, though mortal, were healed. Sin is a great survivor. It'll find a way of surviving until, and until Jesus comes and casts it and its author into the lake of fire, we will ever have a conflict with it. Sin is not just to be confessed. It is to be contested. My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. And just as Satan could misquote scripture for his own purpose, so sin misuses scripture. You remember Paul had to say to the Christians at Corinth, I wrote unto you in a, in a letter not to keep company with the sexually immoral. And then he had to say, but I didn't mean the sexually immoral in the world, otherwise you'd have to leave the world. But if anyone who has the name of a brother is so guilty, that's what I was writing about, how they sidestepped to their own convenience and to their own advantage the plain exhortation and injunction of the apostle. And so here, of all the truths in the word of God, what should clearly outlaw sin namely the gospel of God's free, pardoning, cleansing grace in the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ and by way of his life offered up in death, can there be a stronger argument against sin and sinning than that? No, there isn't. And yet, John has to say, my little children, these things I write unto you. He's just been speaking of pardon and cleansing. We walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses, all, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
But that is not an argument against sinning. The French liberal free thinker, rationalist, Voltaire, on his deathbed, refused, the, and a critic, of course, of the Roman Catholic Church, refused the ministrations of a Roman priest, saying, God will forgive me, that's his job, or that's his trade. We wouldn't use those words, but have you ever thought that thought? Have you ever traded on it? The Lord needs to forgive us, isn't he? And to cleanse us. Go and sin no more. Is what the gospel says and what the gospel enables us in measure to do. To the degree that we sin, we are playing with death and with darkness while professing to believe the word of life and to walk in the light. Now John isn't here saying that we should be sinless. That is unattainable in this life. But what he is saying is this, and he uses an aorist tense in order to pinpoint it. What he is saying is committing that next sin and other individual acts of sin is not inevitable. We're alive. We're in the light. We're new creatures. Though still sinners, we've been enlivened and enlightened and in fellowship with Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, we are now delivered once and for all and forever from the bondage of sin. Not from its power. We are to engage in a conflict with Satan and sin so that sin does not reign in our mortal bodies. But joined to Jesus Christ, we're alive with a life that is deathless. And therefore, we can resist temptation. And therefore, we can engage in mortification. We can refuse to do something. We can refuse to say something. We can refuse to think something. We can refuse to desire something. Not in our own strength. There was a time when we could never do that. Governed by our lusts and passions and vain thoughts as others still are. But now we are alive to God. And sin will not have dominion over us. That's a statement. Not a promise. 
It doesn't have any condition. If you do this or attain that particular stage of holiness, then you will be able to triumph over. In Christ now, no condemnation, no domination. Both are equally true. And John wants these Christians in Asia Minor to realize that. That they are not helpless. They are able to say no. There we are. Any argument? Who's going to present an argument for sin and sinning? Well, why do we do it? Oh, it's that subtle, inbred, deep-dyed, twistedness, willfulness, self-centeredness, self-opinionatedness, self-love. So, what's going to happen? My little children, these things I write unto you so that you may not sin. He's a good pastor, you know. But if anyone sins, we, and he's including himself as well. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have, if we sin, not we have no longer, much less we never ever had. We, we have and we still have an advocate with the Father because that's where our sin reaches. It reaches the Father just as sin does not merely affect Inwardly, outwardly in terms of social relations, upward. I'm not being specific with regard to the nature of that effect beyond to say that it is darkness in the presence of the one who is light without it, who hates it. It's the very antithesis of his being, his nature, his will, his self-disclosure. And isn't this part of the greatest grief of the Christian? That we sin against our heavenly Father. What then? Forget for a moment everything else and just focus on this that we are sinners in the presence of a holy, righteous Father. And we've displeased and offended him grievously, lengthily, repeatedly, blatantly, defiantly. What's going to happen? There'll be those who say, don't worry, he's love. Oh, no. He's holy and he's righteous. We have, there's someone else 
comes in, who intervenes, an advocate with the Father. He is the one who pleads for us in the presence of the Father, in spite of our sin. Our hearts, our consciences may accuse us so that we are too ashamed to look up to our Father. There's another accuser who may, I say may because he's being cast out, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect. It is God who justifies. But we may have another accuser who tries to get in between us and the Father so as to have us banished from his presence. But he can't get a foot in the door because there's someone there who pleads our cause. And this isn't love pleading with justice. This is justice pleading with love because he's the righteous one. He has a right to be there. We don't have a right in and of ourselves to be there. He does. Throughout the whole of his life, he walked in light, and in him there was no darkness at all. And he undertakes to plead our cause. And how does he do it? Well, I don't know. What does he say? I don't know. What does he do? No, what has he done? That's the point. He is the propitiation for our sins. Not ours only, but the whole world. Sinners from all over the world. Are they represented by him on the basis of what he did on the cross? In those three hours, when he who had known nothing but light without darkness knew nothing but darkness without light. When he, having kept every law, inwardly and outwardly, that you and I have broken, then bore the full weight of all the wrath, the righteous indignation of God, that would have crushed us justly forever and ever. He's there. And because he's there, we're safe. Because he's there as our head and redeemer, our lawkeeper, our penalty bearer. He's there as the propitiation for our sins. All of them. Past, present, and sins to come, and sins to come, may they be fewer for his sake. Let us pray. We give thee thanks, O Lord. For thy great kindness and mercy to us in sending thy dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live and to die 
in our place and for our benefit. And we thank thee that thou hast endeared him to us and granted us a desire to please him and to purify ourselves as he is pure, waiting for his coming when we, seeing him, will be made like him forever and ever. Receive our thanks. Pardon and cleanse us afresh. Strengthen us against every temptation. All that is in the world by the scheming of Satan. And enable us, putting on the whole armour, to engage in that conflict with him, which in spite of the fact that we will stumble and fall, will ultimately result in triumph and his total and utter and everlasting and ignominious and just defeat under thy holy displeasure. Spread the gospel far and wide. Grant thy blessing on us and our brothers and sisters here and the work of this seminary. Those who have gone out with the gospel, extend the kingdom to the uttermost ends of the earth. To the glory of thy dear Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Copyright 2013, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.